Amen. At this time, you can be seated and the uh, children can be dismissed to Sprouts uh, with Paul and Susanna, children, kindergarten and younger. We are in the book of Hosea, and as I prayed and as we were singing, uh, I was so reminded of the grace of God that we all have. Um, What just simply occurred to me as I'm sitting there singing these songs is that none of us should be here right now. You know, like, we uh, should be in hell. We should be goners. If it wasn't for the grace of God. You see, sin has condemned us. We are broken. We have sinned against a holy, and not just a holy, but a just God. And the very fact that we are here today singing these songs together is grace in and of itself. And then to think of the grace that He has poured out on us, not just simply the common grace of being alive, but the particular grace of Forgiveness and redemption and the, the, the hope that we have in the promises of God that He will bring us home and that we will spend all of eternity with Him. My goodness! That should bring us joy this morning as we worship. And if that doesn't fill your heart with joy, the thought of the redemptive act of God in your life, I pray that it will this morning as we, as we study this story of a... a, a husband who is pursuing an unfaithful wife and how that shows us God's love for us. So turn with me to Hosea chapter 2. If you are new to the Bible, just simply open up the Bible to the table of contents and you can find the page number for Hosea in your Bible. Hosea is a prophet and he has a word for us today just as he did for Israel in his day. Hosea chapter 2. Let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of his word and then we will read together. Father, we do ask that you bless this time. Uh, Give me grace that I don't have, uh, something that has to come from you and that is the ability to speak your word. my words are just simply words and nothing more. Uh, the, the, the words that we're reading is, is ink on paper and nothing more. Uh, it's when your Spirit takes these words and does something in our hearts, they become living and they become powerful and they become the very Word of Jesus. So I ask that Jesus speaks to us this morning. Give us the grace. Open our ears. Help us to listen. Help us to think. And beyond that, convict our hearts. Remind us of the glory of your, the great redemption that we have in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hosea chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead. For she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, 
and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children I also will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge her up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but not find them. She shall say, I will go again and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and then went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of Baal from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Every marital affair begins with lies that are bought and sold. Lies which the unfaithful believe, lies which guide them into their adulterous relationship. I was standing in line at Giant about two weeks ago and Uh, It was one of those days where the lines at Giant are exceptionally long. 
Uh, not as long as Save-A-Lot, though, all right? Save-A-Lot beats Giant in lines. And there uh, next to me was the National Enquirer. And on the front was news of the latest affair. I won't say who. I'm not going to spread the gossip, all right? Don't even ask me later. I'm not going to tell you, all right? News of the latest affair. And what it said in big capital letters was the word lies. There are lies. Now, why is it, first of all, that we, why is it that I, all right, I'm supposed to be an example, right? And I picked it up, and I'm reading the thing while I'm in line. And I'm just hoping that one of you guys isn't behind me, like, watching me read the gossip. And so now I just tell you like an idiot. <laughs> Why is it that we're drawn to that? Well, there's a, a lot of reasons probably. I think one of those reasons is simply this. I think we often are just simply curious. How in the world did it happen? How did that happen? Like they seemed like they loved each other. I mean, I know they had an open relationship, but other than that, <laughs> how did they go? How did this happen? Lies. I mean, isn't that a pretty good explanation of how it happens? Lies that are bought and sold. Lies which the unfaithful believes and tells themselves to create a new reality. What we are about to see in this chapter are the lies of adultery. As played out in the relationship with, with Hosea and Gomer, which pictures our relationship with God, the lies which lead us into spiritual adultery. Now let me just give you an overview of the chapter. If this was a movie, this chapter would begin with a scene in divorce court. And then as it goes on, it, will, it ends with Hosea, maybe a, maybe a, a close-up of his face, picture his face. It ends with Hosea and this determination in his eye. I will love her. I will restore this marriage. I will take the responsibility on my own shoulders. This marriage will be saved. Now that is a very broad overview of this chapter. Let's dive into it and begin to look at it. It starts in divorce court. Look at verse 2. We see this pleading. Verse 2 of that first line. Plead with your mother, he says. Plead. Now, the Jewish writers, they would repeat a word for emphasis, all right? So that's not just lazy writing because they couldn't think of another word to use. But this is an intentional way to say that there is a repetitive, uh, ongoing, pursuing, relentless kind of pleading that is deep and that is earnest. Plead with your mother. Plead with her. Like, I'm begging you. What? Look at it. Before we get into the, the what, she, he says, for she is not my wife, and I am not your husband. Now, that is the divorce court language, all right? Under Jewish law, in order to marry a girl, a guy would, would, would declare, you are my wife, and I am your husband. And then he would take her into the tent, if you know what I mean by that, and then they would be married. To get divorced under Jewish law, that had to just simply be reversed, and the man, either through submitting it in writing 
or through in public making a declaration, this woman is not my wife. And I am not her husband. That is the language right there of divorce. Now, we see them in divorce court, all right? But the papers aren't signed. How do we know that? Because he goes on pleading with her. So a husband now, who you could say has the right before God to divorce his wife for adultery, walks out of divorce court and says, you know what, we're not going to go through with this divorce. And he begins to plead with her. Plead. And what is he pleading? That she put away her whoring from her face, her adultery from between her breasts. By this time, guys, this has gotten pretty bad. All right? We remember the beautiful wedding last week. Bride comes down, they're married, they have a child together. But then after that first son, things take a turn for the worse. And there's a daughter born that is not Hosea's. And then she gives birth to another son, and this son is simply named, not mine. Not mine. Now, by the time we get to this chapter, it's gotten even worse than that. Look at verse uh, 12. He says, I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. Friends, at this point now, Gomer, it seems, is taking wages for the services rendered to her lovers. She's being paid for her love. Verse 16, he says that there's coming this day where you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my Baal. What this means here is that the names are being mixed up. There are a number of men in her mind and in her life, and she's mixing the names of those men with the name of Hosea. In the context of Israel, they are mixing the names of God as their husband, Yahweh, with Baal. So literally, husband and Baal, was, they, were, they were very similar words in the Hebrew. And there's probably some kind of mixture that's taking place where they're basically saying this. They're saying, and here's the adultery piece, they're saying that, that we can go to the shrines, we can go to the high places, yet still follow ba- or y- Yahweh. We don't have to give up our tradition. We don't have to give up our worship of Yahweh. And we can also have these other gods. Guys, is this not like extremely applicable to us today? In a culture where we call ourselves Christian, like very few Christians um, intentionally admit that they are drifting away from God, right? Right? More often than not, it is so subtle, which makes pastoral work hard. And those of you that are counseling others and encouraging others and calling others back, you can understand this is difficult because we very rarely say, I'm turning away from Yahweh and embracing Baal alone. All right? I'm no longer a Christian. I am now a Muslim or something. That's very rare. It's usually in our adultery, in our spiritual adultery, in our drifting, it's very subtle. And we don't even realize it. 
And we, we believe that we can go on with our lives. We can begin to live our lives however we want. We can live out our desires however we choose to live them out. We can redefine sexuality in a, in a way that, that helps us meet our desires. We can find hope in our friends and, and, and attribute all of our joy to them and not to God and still then call ourselves a Christian. I still love God. I just, I don't know, I just don't see it the way the conservatives do. I still love God. I just, uh, I just pra- my, my, my faith is just lived out differently now. Friends, this is the subtle drift. This is what's happening here. This is the context for Hosea. They have drifted. They're still worshiping Yahweh. But there's these other names that are coming across their lips. So we see now they're in divorce court. Uh, Things have gotten very bad. She's calling Hosea by her lover's names as she comes home to him after spending the night at their house. This parallels Israel's temptation. Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 17, it says this, We will do everything we have vowed. Make offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pour, dr- pour out drink offerings to her as we did. Both, uh, both we and our fathers, our kings, and our officials in the cities of Judah and on the streets of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah, Israel is turning to the worship of the moon. The queen of heaven, they would call it. The sun was the king of heaven. The moon was the queen of heaven. They're saying, we can do that. We can go back and we can worship the moon. Let's, let's, let's return to that idol. Let's return to that lover as we used to do, as we once did. And then here is their reasoning. Check this out. For then, when we were doing that, we had plenty of food and we prospered and we saw no disaster. Let me show you something here. This is the first lie of spiritual adultery paralleled with the first lie of, of marital adultery, all right? So we're learning kind of two lessons at, at one, uh, in one text right here. Look at verse 5. It says, Their mother here has played the whore she, who conceived has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers. So she is going after them. They're not coming to her at this point. She's going to them. The question is, Why? What is the lie that she has bought? Why is she going after her lovers? Look at the verse. Who give me my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. They give me the food that I need to eat. They sustain my life. I'm thirsty and my lovers give me the water that I need. I need need clothing. They give me the wool and the flax that I need. And then they even give me luxuries like oil, which would have been used to put on the face, to make the face shine in the ancient world. Oil and and drinks, wine, and other fine beverages. They give me what I need. Here, listen. First lie of spiritual adultery is this. The end results of meeting needs justifies our lover, our idolatrous relationship. Why is it? That Israel would turn back to worshiping the moon as we once did because when we did that, we had plenty of food, they said. We prospered and we saw no disaster. First lie, the end results justifies the adulterous relationship. We had provisions back then. Back when I was in this former lifestyle, my life was better than it is now. 
My health was better. I didn't have feelings of judgment. I was actually happier then than I am now. And so then, because of these felt needs for happiness and for joy and for our needs to be simply met, we simply then justify our spiritual adultery. It's okay to return because there are real, legitimate needs that I have and I must go back to them. Listen, the mantra that we have in our culture today is, is this. If it satisfies a need, if it, uh, if, if it makes you sort of feel better about yourself, self-actualization, if you feel like it would, would help you become who you are, then it is morally okay. So in our culture, we have redefined morals and ethics based on the end results, the felt needs that we have. As long as it doesn't help hurt anyone else, if it meets a need of yours, then it is okay. First lie of spiritual adultery. We see this in the Garden of Eve, Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, as they are commanded by God not to eat of the tree of uh, the fruit of knowledge and, and good and evil. The lie comes to them, and they buy it. What is the end result that they're going for in their disobedience? The end result is knowledge. We have a need for knowledge. Like, I cannot live my existence without knowing more, without knowing what God knows. And so then it becomes idolatry. They distrust the Word of God and they trust their own thinking. They trust the temptation of the serpent and they sin to achieve the end result of knowledge. And guys, we've been doing this ever since. We have a felt need in our life. God's Word gives us specific direction on something and we distrust it and we place ourselves as the authority and we say that need that I have, food, water, oil, wine, whatever it might be for you, that need that I have, it's, it's worth distrusting God, redefining reality so that I can have that need met. She's going to her lovers because she needs to eat, because she needs to drink. And in her mind, it just simply makes sense. What sin are you justifying in your life? Because a certain need, a certain felt need is being met. Let's broaden it. What, what idol, which doesn't necessarily mean inherently sinful, okay? What person or thing or idea are you idolizing? And, and you justify it because it meets a certain felt need in your life. Let me give you some examples of how this plays out in my own devotional life. A couple weeks ago, I uh, realized that I hate fasting, all right? I'm just going to confess it to you as I confess it to my accountability partners. I don't like fasting. It is my least favorite spiritual discipline. 
And I would say this probably true of a lot of people in the Christian culture. Like, look, I'll pray in the mornings. I'll go to church on Sundays. But, man, do not tell me to put my coffee down. All right? Because I have a need. And I hate not meeting my needs. What, what, this is my confession. What I realized was this. Um, I, have a, I have a pretty fast metabolism, okay? Meaning I can eat pretty much whatever I want, and it doesn't really affect me. And so for the majority of my life, I don't have to worry about what I eat. That probably will come later in life when I have a heart attack. <laughs> My wife says that'll happen sooner than later the way I eat. Um, I, uh, I have, a, I have an, a house that's comfortable, that is secure. So I don't have to uh, worry about security at night. Um, I have a comfortable couch to do most of my reading on. You see what I'm saying? Like most of the time I meet my needs. I'm married. And so I have an outlet for intimacy that my single and celibate friends sacrifice. So me and, uh, this is my own confession, I realized, like, I meet most of my felt needs. Now, granted, I still deny things and I refine things and I channel things, but for the most part, there's, there are very few needs that I just simply go without. Friends, that is a scary thought. Do you see how that thought can lead us into idolatry? I do not want to be uncomfortable. I do not want to go without needs being met and it is right for me to be comfortable. I can't think straight if I'm not comfortable and so I have to have this need met. The first lie of spiritual adultery is that the ends justify the means. If it meets a need, then it is okay. A couple other examples of how this plays out in life. At your job. If your work requires you to partake in unethical practices, uh, to do something that is sinful, do we justify the work because it pays the bills? It's the only way that I can make money. Or, do we trust the Word of God like a friend of mine did and sacrifice our job, sacrifice bills being paid, nearly lose our home because we are not willing to disobey the Word of God? In your natural uh, bents that we have, I am prone to depression, you may say. I am prone toward lust or toward same-sex attraction or toward anxiety or toward a number of different areas of life. Do we begin to justify living a life that is disobedient to the Word of God simply because it meets a need. 
I hear this all of the time as a pastor. Like, you, you don't understand I come from a difficult background. You don't understand. You, you, uh, I, I struggle with depression. As a way to begin to justify, it's okay for me to distrust God's Word. Friends, beware of the first lie that can creep into your life. The ends justify the means. Um, what I want to, want to show you here, though, is this. Sandwiched between these lies now is redemptive action that counteracts the lie that's bought, okay? So here's Gomer buying the lie. The, the, uh, I'm getting what I need from my lovers. Hosea counteracts that. God counteracts that. Look at verse 6. Therefore, everybody say therefore. It's an important word. There's three therefores in this passage. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her that so, so that she cannot find her paths. For Israel, this literally would have meant a wall. Like you're leaving Israel. I've given you a land to worship me, to obey my decrees, and you're leaving the land so that you can Go to the shrines and go to the high places and so you can worship other gods. The picture in mind would be a wall that's going to be built around Israel, maybe thorns that would come around the land so that we cannot leave for Hosea and for Gomer. Hosea, just track with me here, is putting Gomer on lockdown. He's like bringing her into the house. He's locking the door. And he's saying, you will not leave. If you want an example of this, an illustration of this, watch Walk the Line, where June Carter kidnaps Johnny and keeps him in the house and like wards away the, the, the oncoming drug dealers, like does, basically cuts off his supply, will not let him leave to force a rehabilitation. This is the picture that we have here. Now, at first, this seems harsh and cruel and a removal of freedom. I should be able to go to my other lovers if I want to. I want you to see how this is redemptive. Look at verse 7. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. She shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better then than now. So what he wants, so what Hosea wants, is for Gomer to be cut off from her lover's so that she will experience loneliness. So that she will say at some point, man, I, I at least had it better back then with Hosea than I do now. As hard as this is for him, he does not want her to find her lovers. Friends, God will hedge up your way. He will cut off your supply to your lovers. If you are a Christian and you are His and He is yours, He will not let you continue to go back to your idols over and over and over again. At some point, and He may already be doing this in your life, you may see this before you right now, He will hedge up your way and He will say, I am locking you in. I'm cutting off your supply. You cannot keep going back to your lovers. That is God's redemptive action so that we may be miserable and turn back to Him and say at least it was better back then than it is now. 
So the first lie of spiritual adultery is that the ends justifies the lover. The second lie of spiritual adultery is the other side of that. I want you to look at the text, and before we get into this, remember the picture. Here's Gomer going to her lovers for what? For food, water, wool, flax, oil, wine. And she says, I get what I need there. I want you to see what's happening. Look at verse 8. And she did not know that it was I. She did not know this entire time that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil. The picture that we have here is is this. As she is going to her lovers, and there she justifies it. I have food there. I have water there. I have wool and flax for clothing to keep me warm at night. I have my luxuries. What she did not know is that this entire time, Hosea had been sneaking up to the back door and dropping off food and water to keep her alive, to sustain her life while she's sleeping with other men. He was giving her wool to keep her warm at night and flax to give her clothing throughout the day so that she wouldn't go without. And then even he was giving her luxuries. He was giving her 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 oil to put on her face so that she could feel beautiful. And he was giving her the luxuries such as wine and other drinks. Oh, the love of God that we see here. The entire time that we've been going to our other lovers, it was Him all along providing for us. And we said it was our lovers. Guys, do you see this radical picture of God's love? How it must have hurt Hosea to walk away as she walked in the door and began to eat and drink what he just dropped off. But how it must have hurt him greater to see her go without to see her go hungry and thirsty and naked. And so even though she was running around, he provided for her the entire time the love of God. Jehovah Jireh. God is the provider. The second lie that we buy is that God is not our provider. We experience God's provision. We experience His common grace. The, the food and, and water that we eat and things that come up out of the ground and grow for us like tomatoes and green beans. The breeze that we experience on a cool September day that just lightens our mood and gives us a little more energy in our step the oxygen that we breathe, the doctors that we can go to when we're sick, and the brains that God gave the doctors to know how to help us. We experience the common grace, yet we don't recognize God as the provider. 
We, we accredit these things to man's thinking, to our accomplishments, to nature, to the, to the breed. We accredit these things to our own personality, and I just like these sort of things. And then we experience the particular grace of God, forgiveness and redemption. And we, even with that, we say, I did it. I brought about my salvation. It was me who sought after God. I found Him and I believed and I put my faith in Him. And we accredit ourselves at the center. We do not see God as the provider of all things. If God is the fountain from which the water of life flows, all right, we tend to worship the cup that we use to catch the water and to drink it. And God says, I am the fountain. Uh, the, the fountain is your sustenance, not the cup. The water flows from the fountain. And by the way, I gave you the, the dang cup as well. I made it for you. I put it in your hands. I gave you the brains to be able to put that together so that you may catch the water. Yet we worship the cup. Look what I made. You see, idolatry is, create, is trading a truth for a lie. It is worshiping the created as opposed to worshiping the creator. It's, idolatry is worshiping the good things as opposed to worshiping the giver of good things. Psalm 104, praise the Lord my God. O Lord my God, You are very great, clothed with splendor and with majesty. You set the earth on its foundations and it will not be moved. You covered the earth with watery depths like a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, yet at Your rebuke they fled. At the sound of Your thunder they took to flight. He makes springs pour into ravines which flow between the mountains and gives water to the beasts of the field. Wild donkeys quench their thirst. Birds of the air make their nests by the waters and they sing among the branches. He waters the mountains with rain from His upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of His work. He makes grass grow so the cattle may eat. Plants for us to cultivate and food that comes from the earth. Wine to gladden the hearts of humans. Oil to make their faces shine. Bread which sustains their hearts. Yet, we buy the lie that God does not provide. We sit with friends around the dinner table and we laugh and we have a good time and then we, at the end of the day, attribute our joy to our friends. They make me happy. They make me laugh. We grow plants in our amazing urban gardens. And from the earth, tomatoes form 
something that we cannot do on our own. And we pick it and we eat it and we Facebook it and we attribute the success to our green thumb. We find comfort in many things, yet we do not realize that God is the source of all comfort, all good things. Now, look at the redemptive action that again counteracts this lie. Look at verse 9. Therefore, he says, I will take back. I will take back the wine and I will take back the grain and I will take back the oil. I will cut it off. I will cut off the supply. Verse 11, he says, I will put an end to her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all of her appointed feasts. Hosea here is di- he's discontinuing the supply. Remember, as he's been taking the food and the water and the wine and the oil to her and dropping it off so that her needs may go or be, may, may be met, he is now, and imagine how this would hurt him, he's now stopping that. He's cutting it off, and he says, She can now go thirsty, and she must. She will go naked, and she must. She will go hungry and she must. I will cut it off. I will stop your idolatrous worship. The things that you have been using to make your sacrifices to your gods, I will cut off those things. As you have been worshiping food and sex and money and power, I will rob you of those things. And you will go without Now, how is this redemptive? I want you to see this isn't just an angry God just being mean to us. This is love. A Hosea, which would continue to provide what she needs through her lovers, is at the end of the day not a loving Hosea. And a God which continues to allow His children to go to other gods and worship at the altar of love, sex, and money, and whatever your God may be, He is not a loving God, and so He will cut it off. And he may have already cut it off in your life. You may be experiencing the, 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 the break. You don't have that joy anymore. You don't have that happiness anymore. You've lost the wonder of that, that God that you were hanging on to and treasuring. He's cut it off for you. Look how this is redemptive. Look at verse 14. Well, starting at the end of verse 13. The reason is she went after her lovers. And she forgot me. Verse 14. Look at this line. Therefore. Everybody say, therefore. Behold. Now that word behold is a big word in the Bible. Behold is used for like big things. Like behold. A child is born. Alright? Big moments. Behold. Behold means Look at this. Set your eyes upon this. I want you to see what's about to happen. God is saying, watch me. All right? Watch what I am about to do. Behold. Look at this phrase. I will allure her. That word allure is the word seduce. I will seduce her. 
walking out of divorce court and saying, no, I've got a better plan than signing off on these papers. I'm going to seduce her. How does God seduce her? How does Hosea determine to seduce his wife? Look at the text. And bring her into the wilderness. Now that would have been this, this uh, uh, earlier moment when God brought Israel out of Egypt. This, this great moment of salvation out of the land of slavery and into God's providential care. I will take her back to that moment and I will speak tenderly to her. God is saying, I will take her back to a sweeter time. Hosea is saying, I will remind her what it was like when we were dating. I'm going to woo her. I'm going to pursue her. I'm going to take her back to these earlier days. Do you remember what it was like when we first fell in love? Do you remember what it was like when I led you out of the land of slavery? How you longed for me and how you loved me and how you cherished me and only me. Do you remember how in those early days how I was enough for you? You didn't need to run to other lovers. I was enough for you. Do you remember what it was like when we used to lay in bed together and just laugh and talk endless hours into the night? Well, that's how I'm going to start speaking to you again. I'm going to use the language of courtship and of dating. I'm going to speak tenderly and I am going to woo you and flirt with you and be good to you and restore to you the joy of your salvation. Have you lost that? Have you lost the joy of your salvation? Has your eyes been looking at other lovers as more splendid than God, more treasured than God? Psalm chapter 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Plead that. Ask God for that. Beg God as David did, Remind me of what it was like early on when we were dating, when we first fell in love, when you first opened my eyes to the goodness of your salvation. Verse 16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will be called, or I'm sorry, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me Baal, my Baal. What he's saying here is that it will then be clear who your man is. You won't be confusing me with other names, with other men. You will remember that you have one that you have committed your life to, and I will be that one. Your gods will no longer be mixed. It will be clear, he's saying. It will be clear. No longer will you try to be a Christian as well as dabble in other religions. No longer will you try to be a Christian and seek your identity in your job and in your work and in your education. No longer will you be a Christian and also distrust the Word of God on 
sexuality. No longer will your gods be mixed. It will be clear to you and to all others who your husband is. You will be a Christian, yes, on Sundays, but you will also be a Christian Monday through Friday at your job as you seek to do all things to the glory of God and to do a work well done that is pleasing to Him. You will be a Christian also on Friday nights at the club. And you will be a Christian also on Saturday nights when He wants to get in bed with you. It won't be mixed. It will be clear who you are married to. Is it clear in your life today? Is it clear? Do you see your husband? Do you see your one lifelong lover before you? Do others see it? Is it clear in your life? Now how is he going to make this clear? Look at verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. Now that word betroth right there is this old language of a dowry that is paid for the bride. The husband pays the dowry to the father so he can receive the bride. I will pay the dowry. I will betroth you to me. And what is the dowry? What will he pay? I will, be, I will betroth you to me, look at it, in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. What was it that Gomer lacked? It was righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy and justice. What will it cost? Hosea to pursue her, to woo her, to cut off the supplies, and to bring her back into the marriage, it will cost Hosea's righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. What is it that we lack in our fallen and depraved and unfaithful state? We lack righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness. What will it cost God to renew our marriage, to, to save this marriage? It will cost God the righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, and, and faithfulness of His very own Son. His Son is our payment. You see, when we see God, we see the Son, whom the Father in His love for us sent into this world to pay for us. And friends, when we see the Son, we see our Groom. And it was Him all along. It was Him all along providing for us while we wandered off. Providing for us while we were seeking happiness and comfort in other things. It was Him that was giving us the comfort. It was Him that was giving us the happiness. But we didn't recognize it. We thought it was our gods. But it was Christ. And now we see Him. We see our groom and we repent and we turn back 
and we find our righteousness and our mercy and our steadfast love and our faithfulness in Christ. And we hear His words spoken tenderly to us through the Scriptures. And as the Holy Spirit softly speaks to us, I love you. You are mine. And I am yours. This marriage is saved because of Jesus. Friends, if you don't know Jesus, you need to know Jesus. You need to see Jesus because you need a payment. And God has provided it. A payment that we could not provide on our own. That is the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Repent and turn back to your groom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we see here in Hosea a picture of Your love. And we are reminded of this song that we sing, how deep is the Father's love for us. How vast, beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to save, to make a wretch His treasure. That is the story that we see here unveiled. You have pursued us and you have wooed us and you have spoken tenderly to us and you have not signed the divorce papers yet you have sought out on your own to provide for us not only our the common grace that we all enjoy but the particular payment of the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness and the remission of our sins God thank you for saving this marriage we owe it all to you May we not turn back to our other gods. May we this week repent of believing the lies that we have believed. The lies which have led us into spiritual adultery. The lies which say the end results of needs being met justifies our lovers. The lies which tell us that you really don't provide for us and don't care for us. Let us repent of those and simply trust your word even when it doesn't feel trustworthy, even when it's hard to believe. Let us trust you. Let us hear you. Let us see Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.